please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our scripture today comes from Genesis 18. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is, your, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kristen. Thank you, musicians. Let's pray as we um, consider this text this morning. Our Father, we come to you with need. We ask that you would supply, that you would uh, do a work in us. Teach us to take refuge in you. We need your spirit. Again, we ask that you would uh, be present in our midst, speaking through me, penetrating our hearts so that we might um, leave transformed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week, I heard an interview with Andy Crouch where he was talking about um, Princess Diana and Mother Teresa. And he was kind of, he was saying that, that it's interesting because they died on the same week. And in many ways, their lives were mirror images of one another. They were the most recognizable women on the planet at the end of the 20th century. And Diana's path to influence was through uh, celebrity. She was, she was known for being known. She was beautiful. And she married the Prince of Wales, which gave her a platform. It made her known, and she became recognizable. On the other hand, Mother Teresa became an influencer through the road of sainthood. She poured her life out for others. She was hospitable to others. And... Crouch said, you know, throughout our lives, we want influence in the Princess Diana sort of way. We want the road to celebrityhood. And really, none of us can even get there. There's like, there's one Princess Diana. She's beautiful. She married the only Prince of Wales. That was the only route to her celebrityhood. 
On the other hand, none of us want to be Mother Teresa. And yet, all of us can. That's available to every one of us to pour our lives out for others. We can do that. And this, listen to what Crouch says. We've not lacked for models of godly power. We just don't want this, referring to Princess, uh, I'm sorry, referring to Mother Teresa. We've not lacked for examples of godly power. We just don't want the suffering that comes with it. The long stretches of anonymity and seeming ineffectiveness, the humiliation of being like your Lord, that part we'd really rather not have. Now, if you had to summarize what it was that made Mother Teresa uh, a person that just poured her life out, she, she was exercising throughout her life Christian hospitality. That's what she was doing. She was uh, sharing her life, sharing any means that she had, sharing her home with those who had no home, those who had no food, those who had need. She was pouring herself out. She was exercising Christian hospitality. And this, this, this Christian hospitality is part and parcel of the Christian life. The hospitals, for example, you know, you hear the word hospital in the word hospitality. Hospitals were developed by Christians in the early church. They said we shouldn't just shun the people that are sick around us. Let's bring them in and care for them. And in the Roman Empire, when, when the Roman Empire would throw, literally throw babies on trash heaps and leave them for dead or sell them into slavery, Christians said, let's build orphanages and let's take these children in. And they started doing that. Like, it's Christian hospitality. It's, 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 it's changed the world. The world is a better place because of this action of many Christians over many centuries. If it, there's a book, if you're interested in all this, called Dominion by Tom Holland. It's a big, fat book. But basically, he's talking about all the ways that Christianity changed the world for the better. It's because of this idea of Christian hospitality, Christian love. So what is Hospitality. It's opening up our life to another, sharing our lives, sharing a meal, sharing a drink with another, inviting people into our lives. That's, it's as simple as that. And what we're going to do this morning is consider what Christian hospitality looks like. What does it look like for us to be hospitable as Christians? That's the first kind of consideration. Second consideration is how do we actually do it? So how do we be Christian, hospitably Christian, and, and, and how, do we, how do we do it? How do we find the resources to be hospitable? And we've kinda, we're going to organize it around two parts of this passage. First, we're going to focus on the host. Abraham, in this passage, is a host to these three guests. And then we're going to consider the gift of the guest. So the host, Abraham, and the gift of the guest. Okay, so first let's consider the host. Look at verse 1. It says, The Lord appeared... To Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and all of a sudden, behold, get this, there were three men standing right there in front of him. And when he saw them, he, he ran from the tent door to meet them, bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. While I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, 
and after that you may pass on, since you've come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. So there's three men. Abram looks up. He's sort of resting. He looks up, and boom, there's three people there. And he runs to greet them. He says, I'm going to welcome you, so let, let me go make some preparations for you. Now, we're going to consider these three men in just a second because it's, it's kind of wild. So we'll get there. But right now, um, we see Abraham extending hospitality. And this is essential in the ancient world, to be hospitable. You know, travel was dangerous. It was risky. There were no Holiday Inns or Hampton Inns to stay in. And so as a traveler uh, was traveling through the ancient world, they would rely on the hospitality of others. It was a requirement. It was essential to travel, that a passerby could, could be welcomed and cared for by strangers. And they would stay two, maybe three days at most. Because as my Uncle Ronnie would always say, guests like fish start to stink after three days. So it's kind of a three-day limit. I think that's actually a Benjamin Franklin quip. Um, so that three, two to three days, these guests would stay. And we see Abram providing hospitality. And it's important for us to just kind of consider what it looks like. So the, the first thing I want us to see is that Christian hospitality requires a disruption of your life. It's disruptive for you to be hospitable. What is Abraham doing when these three guests show up? He's resting. He's, he's having what many people in many parts of the country have every day of the work week. They, he's, do, he's having a siesta, right, in the heat of the day. Take a lunch, take another hour break, rest, let it get a little cooler, and then go back to work. He's taking, he may even be taking a nap. And all of a sudden, he, these guests come and he springs into action. Nap broken, rest broken, disruption, right, in his life. But he sees the guests and so he goes and, and he visits them. And that's what hosting does. It disrupts, it takes our time. It takes our money. It costs. Um, you know, generally, I, I don't know that we're that hospitable as a culture. We certainly don't exalt it as a virtue in quite the way that Abraham's culture exalted hospitality as a virtue. And I think one of the reasons for that is we're just too busy. We're squeezing everything we can out of every second of the day to kind of get through our list of things that need to be done. We measure time so precisely, and so we've got kind of a death grip on the seconds. And, man, if somebody's going to break into that, that's a big problem for us. But look, look at, I want you to notice how the, just kind of this, the, the ancient understanding of time. When did they show up at his door, or as he sat at the door? Look at verse 1. In the heat of the day, just kind of that three to four hour period in the afternoon when it's hot. Like, notice how vague that, and then in other places in the scriptures, the cool of the day. So you have the cool of the day, the heat of the day, you've got morning, you've got evening, you've got noon, and that's basically your time, that's basically your time. And notice how that kind of opens up vistas for hospitality. It opens up uh, 30 minutes, hour, two hours to receive a guest. Because we have such a tight grip on time, we just we don't have that kind of room in our lives. So, it, so being hospitable disrupts. It disrupts our 
schedules. It disrupts our rest time. It disrupts our, maybe our, our, our budget at times. The second thing I want us to notice is that Christian hospitality is disordered. It's disordered. Look at verse 6. Notice, notice how many references there are to, to haste and quickness. And Abraham went quickly into his tent to, to Sarah. And he said, quick, uh, three sayas of fine flour, knead it, make cakes. And he ran to the herd. He ran, right? Middle East people, they don't run. He hiked up his robe and he showed his knees and he starts running to his uh, herds. And, and he, he ran and he, and he took the best calf he could find, tender and good. And he gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and he set it before them. Because the, the arrival of these guests disrupts Abraham in his moment, the, the, the response of hospitality is kind of disordered. It's a little, it feels a little haphazard, a little rushed, a little chaotic. He didn't have time to tidy his tent. He's rushing around. And I know that many of you are holding back from hospitality because you feel like your life is too disordered. You're waiting kind of for that Chip and Joanne remodel of your house to finish so you can, you know, then you can bring people in. Or you're waiting to kind of mask, to perfect your creme brulee dessert. Then you can have people over. Or you're waiting for your kids to kind of just not be a complete mess at mealtime. Then you can have people over. Look, it's disordered. Christian hospitality is disordered. Um, It... It's bringing people into our lives. And sometimes the less perfect our lives are, the more encouraging it can be for people. We were a part of a small group at one point, and we had a modest little home. And um, at the time, we had a really nice home. People are wonderful hosts and immaculate place. And we would, um, we would go to their house most of the time because they had the space and all of that. And then they'd, sometimes we would once, every once in a while, we'd come to our house. And there was a person that said, you know, I love being in your house. And it was because it was just this tiny little humble. It was just kind of disordered, not as much space. Remember, hospitality is not putting on a show. It's inviting people into your life. And sometimes that looks disordered. The third thing about Christian hospitality, it's lavish. I want you to notice that Abraham is preparing a feast. He's preparing a Meat in the Middle East, ancient Near Eastern diet was not ordinary. It was special to sacrifice an animal, a young calf, good. What is the word that he used? Tender and good. That is uh, exquisite. That is feasting. Abraham immediately stops his nap, his siesta, his rest. He springs to action. He mobilizes his household to begin to put on a feast, a banquet. And not only that, he's also lavish with his time. Look at verse 6. He stood by them under the tree while they ate the food that they had prepared. While they feasted, Abraham sat under the tree, by them. And notice, it's, it doesn't say he's doing anything. He's just sitting there with them. <laughs> he's, not, um, he's, not inter- he's not saying, hey guys, um, I've got to milk some goats. And if you guys just, just hang tight here, I've got to go take care of a few things, milk some goats, feed some sheep, I'll be back in a little bit. No, he's just standing there with them. He's not entertaining them. 
He's not juggling on a unicycle or telling them jokes or doing magic tricks for them. He's not entertaining. He's just, he's just sharing his life with them. He's being there with them, standing by them. Now, I know that some of us resist hospitality because we're worried about the disruption that it brings into their lives. We're worried that people might come into our lives and see, like, disorder in them. We're worried that it's costly, or maybe we think, like, I can't entertain people. I'm not, I'm not fun to be around. Well, Abraham, he's just standing there. If you can stand next to somebody, you can welcome somebody into your, into your life, right? There's all sorts of reasons, but look, at the heart of hospitality is simply opening our lives to one another, sharing our lives, sharing a meal, sharing a drink with another. And I believe this is one of our strengths as a church, that folks that have come to me that are new to our church have said, I felt welcomed here. And that's encouraging. Like, let's keep it up. That's, that's great. And I, I do believe that we are a hospitable church. It's commanded that we be such. And we can look at lots of places. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 16 and following. Hebrews chapter 13. Um, and many, many other places. But if you're thinking that Christian hospitality is going to require disruption, it's going to cause people to see the disorder in your life, it's going to be time-consuming, you're right. It is. But it's powerful. And it's transforming. Sharing a life with another is, is one of the spots in which we're transformed. Think of it this way. Think, think of a conversation that you've had with a friend or a spouse or your child. How did that conversation come about? Did you say, okay, I'm going to pick up the kids from school. We're going to rush home. They're going to do their homework, prepare dinner. We'll eat dinner. We'll clean up after dinner. And then I've got a 30-minute slot. I'm going to have a life-changing conversation with my teenage daughter. And then following that, I'll have a father-son moment uh, that will change his life from 7.30 to 8 p.m. That's not how it happens. It happens as you're sharing your life with one another. Like, hospitality is kind of the trellis. It's the framework out of which transformation happens, out of which God does transforming work upon his people in the context of community, as that community is being hospitable to one another. Hospitality is like the framework. It's like the trellis for, that kind, for those kinds of conversations to happen. And they come out of nowhere. Tim Keller has done a great sermon on this whole topic of hospitality. It's just called Hospitality. I encourage you to listen to it. But in, in that sermon, he says... He calls his church, and I'm, I'm doing the same here, invite people to your physical home. Invite people to your spiritual home. Invite people to church. I just talked to somebody this morning. They invited some folks to, to, to our church. Invite people to your spiritual home. Invite people to your, to your physical home. That's what Christian hospitality is about. Okay, so that's Christian hospitality. A little bit on what that looks like. Now, we're going to begin to consider this question of how do we be hospitable? If that's what it looks like, how do we get the resources to do it? Um, and, and we're going to see that as we consider the second point, the gift of the guest. The gift of the guest. Well, question, you know, who are these three guests? Because it's three men that are there, and then all of a sudden, Abram's calling him Lord, 
What's going on? Again, we saw this maybe last week or two weeks ago. But this is the, I believe this is the pre-incarnate Jesus showing up to Abraham's tent. Because he's calling him Lord. It, along with two angels. These are supernatural, divine, angelic beings here. Jesus and two angels that have showed up. And look at what, verse 10, look at what happens. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And this is shocking because, as I, I feel like a broken record when I say this, because we, we've been saying it, the text has been telling us this every week, every week, the way of the woman is no longer with Sarah. She not only could not have children during her uh, fertile years, but now that she's menopausal and she can definitely not have children at this point, okay? But literally, what the word, is, the, the Hebrew literally says, she no longer experiences the cycle of woman. That's, that's her situation. And so, verse 12, she laughs. And she says to herself, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? Just like her husband. She doesn't believe it. It's a laugh of... Doubt. It's a laugh of skepticism. It's a laugh of, yeah, right. That's her laugh. It's impossible. Just like, just like Abraham. And so here's the gift of the guest. You ready? It is the promise of the impossible. That's what the Lord brings. A gift. And the gift is a promise. You will have a child. And this time next year, you're going to be rocking that child to sleep. He's going to be a miracle. In verse 14, look at what the Lord says. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? This thing seems impossible. It is impossible. But not for the Lord. Our God is the God of the impossible. Listen to what Walter Brueggemann says um, regarding this this, um, scene. He says, Their world of barrenness is shattered by a new possibility that lies outside the reasonable expectation of their perceptual field. What does that mean? Um, We all have a perceptual field. There's like a field of vision that we have when it comes to what can happen and what can't based on our experience. Like if a person jumps off a skyscraper, my experience tells me that that person will not survive. If I stick my arm in a fire. My experience tells me that I'm going to have some problems, some burns on me at best. Um, and hundred-year-old married couple does not have children. That, that, if that's true, that's outside of our perceptual field. In other words, they're walking by sight, not by faith. And God is coming. God most high, God of gods, Lord of lords, the God of the impossible. And he's saying, you're going to have this child in a year. As real as this moment is, you're going to have you're going to be rocking this baby to sleep. It's going to happen. It's a call again to walk by faith, not by sight. And look at how this the whole scene closes in a really kind of strange way. I, I you know, you kind of laugh as you read it. So, Sarah laughs, but she's sort of outside the tent, so outside earshot, but she's laughing. 
because she can hear it, but she's not being heard, so she's kind of laughing under her breath on the other side of the tent. They don't know what's going on outside the tent. In verse 15, the Lord says that she laughs, and, and look, Sarah denies it, verse 15, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And then the Lord says, no, but you did laugh. The end. <laughs> end of story. I didn't laugh. You did. That's the end. <laughs> what's going on? What? Just a funny, funny way to end it. But really, here's what's happening. It's getting, this is why it ends this way. It's getting us into the heart of the matter. At the center of the human heart is deception. Right? She's lying about what she's done. It's confusion. She doesn't believe. It's unbelief. Right? She doesn't believe. She's, she's laughed like, yeah, right. There's no way that that can happen. That's at the, that's at the center of our hearts. And at the center of, of God's heart, of the Lord, of Christ, is truth. He, he's speaking truth to her. He also knows her heart. He sees to the core of who she is. He says, you did laugh. I know that. I know all things. And I also know that you're going to have a baby in a year. His, his, his prophetic, this tiny little prophetic moment substantiates the bigger prophetic moment that's outside of their reach, a year down the road. I know that you laughed, and I also know that you're going to have a baby in a year, and I'm going to come back. And you're going to la- the laughter that you and Abraham have just had of skepticism is going to be changed into a laughter of joy and celebration. Your mind is going to be blown by what I'm going to do. God is showing Abraham that he is the God of the impossible. And we've been seeing this for two, two weeks now. This has been the theme. Now the question I think that we, we really need to keep considering is on what basis can God be so impossibly good to us? How can he... We're, we're his enemies. The scriptures say that we are enemies of God. We have no interest in him. We're following. We're dead. Uh, I'm thinking of Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. We're dead. We're following the course of this world. We're following Satan, is what Paul says. We're, we're, we're moving away from God. How can he be so impossibly good, impossibly kind to us? We get a, we get a, a big clue in the garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is about to undergo uh, the tragedy and the suffering of the cross. And in that, in that context where Jesus is praying, he's in anguish. Um, he's, he's feeling the weight of, of, of sin that's about to be thrust upon him. The, the, the horror of the cross, but even greater, the horror of God's judgment. And look at what he prays. Listen to what he prays in Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible. Everything's possible. You are the God of the impossible. He prays. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He's saying, is there a way you can be impossibly good to your people and remove this cup from me? You're the God of the impossible. All things are possible for you. So give the people your blessings. Give my people, my bride, your love. Give her to me, but take away this cross. There's a way you can do that. And God says, no, because I am true to my nature. I am perfectly just, perfectly righteous, 
Therefore, the cross is necessary. The cup of, of God's wrath must be had all the way to the bottom, every last drop, so that we could do the impossible, and that is drink the cup of his blessing all the way down, drink every last drop of the cup of his blessing. So that, so that it, Jesus took that cup, the cup of God's wrath, so that Abraham could have this miraculous baby and experience God and the impossible in his own life, so that we can experience salvation so that all of creation can experience the restoration, its restoration, can become a new creation. And notice that every one of those things cannot be seen or touched or felt, at least not Abraham's son at this point, he, he can't see it. It's a promise that he has to rest in. Our own salvation, it's not been made sight yet, it's a promise that we, we rest in, that we believe the recreation of the whole universe? That's a promise that we're believing. All, all of it lies outside of our perceptual field, if you like that language. We've got a way, this is the way the world goes. All of what God has promised is, is out, like the horse with the blinders on its eyes. Everything that God promises is outside of that view, but it's real. It's, it's more real than what we're seeing right now. And so, through this, well, the question, how, how do we get the resources to be hospitable? How do we get the resources to be hospitable? And I, I believe this, this, this work of Christ brings um, the basis for our hospitality into sharp focus. God in Christ was hospitable to us. Our Creator came into this world, and how did He live, live His life? His whole life, from start to finish, he really didn't have a home. Remember, remember his birth? What happened when he tried, his parents tried to find a place for him to be born? We got no room, sorry. You're, you can go down to the horse feeding trough, maybe be born there. And what happens following his birth? Their ref, his mom and dad flee. They're refugees in Africa. And then his adult life, what does he say? Foxes have dens, birds have nests. Son of man has no place to lay his head. It's Rich Mullins saying the, the hope of the whole world rests on the shoulders of a homeless man. He was homeless so that we could get a home. And not only did we not welcome him into, in this world, it, it's not like we just ignored him and kind of gave him the cold shoulder and talked to our friends. We, we actively sought to kill him. That's what humanity did when he, when he arrived. That's the cup that he drank. The cup of, of, of our anger towards our Creator. The cup of God's righteous and holy anger towards sin. And he did all of it so that he could give us a home. Hospitality is sharing our life. Christ gave his life. That's how hospitable he was. He, he, he gave himself for us. And guess what he's doing right now? Do you know what he's doing? He says, in my Father's house there are many rooms... And I'm going up there and I'm preparing rooms for you, my people. That's what I'm doing. I'm being hospitable. Right now, I'm preparing the way for you to come and have a room, have a place in my home. That's how we are hospitable to others. We root ourselves in the hospitality of Christ. Do you see the good news of what Christ has done? Do you see the beauty of it? Let's, let's pray.
Our Father, we give you thanks for your love. Um, it, 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 we can look at it from so many different angles, and it is so sweet every time we gaze upon it. It's not just sweet, it's powerful. It's transforming. It rocks our world. You, you held nothing back from us. And the implication, of course, is that we're called to do the same. We're called to pour everything out for you, for your kingdom. To be hospitable to others, to love. To love our children, to love our spouses, to love our friends, to love strangers. Because we were strangers to you when you came to us. Help us to do that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.